This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Congress has passed and President Biden signing one of the biggest economic packages in our nation's history, totaling nearly $2 trillion for COVID relief. Speaker Nancy Pelosi on the House vote. On this vote, the yeas are 220, the nays are 211. The motion is adopted. It has been a year this month since our country faced closings, layoffs, and a pandemic that upended our very way of life. In that time, Congress has allocated a total of $6 trillion to deal with a crisis. Veronique de Rougie, senior fellow at George Mason University's Mercatus Center, she's also a syndicated columnist, warns us that all of the spending means we're facing a looming fiscal crisis. My big problem is that this is a massive bill, which amount and content is totally disconnected with needs that are brought on by this pandemic. More of our conversation just ahead. But first, some perspective. Have you ever wondered just how much money we're talking about? Here's one way to visualize $1 trillion. Kirk Cameron is co-host of The Way of the Master, found on YouTube. This is a $1 bill. Have you ever wondered what a million dollars would look like in $1 bills? How about a billion in ones? That's a thousand million. Here it is. How about a trillion dollars? You know how much that is? It's a million million. It's a thousand billion. If you earn $1 every second, you'd become a billionaire in 32 years. But it would take more than another 31,000 years for you to make $1 trillion. $1 trillion stacked on top of each other would reach nearly 60,000 miles into space. It would take more than 44,000 18-wheel trucks carrying a load of 25 tons each to transport a trillion $1 bills. Just one way to envision a trillion dollars, and yes, that is with 12 zeros. Now, the president insists that the size of the nearly $2 trillion COVID bill is needed, and it is money well spent. This will be one of the most challenging operational efforts taken by our country. But you have my word that we will manage the hell out of this operation. But as I said last night, we need funding from Congress to make this happen. And I'm optimistic. I'm convinced the American people are ready to spare no effort and no expense to get this done. That from the president earlier this year announcing his COVID bill. And so with that background, we turn to Veronique de Rougie. She is a senior fellow at the Mercatus Center and also a nationally syndicated columnist, an expert on taxes, the economy and the federal budget. I began our conversation by asking for her reaction to this bill and its impact on our nation's red ink. My big problem is that this is a massive bill, which amount and content is totally disconnected with needs that are brought on by this pandemic. Um, We are talking here about a bill that is roughly similar to the one that we passed in April at a time where unemployment was over twice this. Uh, We are um, uh, talking about a bill that left and right 
wing economist, uh, I've actually said it's way too big to actually even like address to to try to address any GDP loss uh, as compared to a, a you know a previous non-COVID baseline. It is also full packed of items that have nothing nothing to do with the pandemic. Now, there's there's some things that do have uh, to do with like vaccination and but uh, and and some extension of unemployment benefits, which you know we can debate whether um, the way it's done is sound or not. But there are pension reform bailouts. There are like uh, Obamacare subsidies in there. There's all sorts of things that have nothing to do with the pandemic. Some worry that this could potentially heat up the economy, creating inflation and putting more pressure on the Federal Reserve. Your thoughts on that? Well, I can tell you one thing, is that any pretense that until we open the economy fully, any bill sent by Congress can actually be stimulating is actually not understanding what Keynesian economics is about. Because when the economy is closed, right, people, you can give money to people. I mean, they're 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 not going to be spending it and jump starting the economy. And this is why we have actually saving rates that have the highest uh, we've ever had. It's because the government has been spending a lot of money on people to people and and they've actually saved it. Of course, some of it has been spent, but a lot of it was saved. And so the fear is that you add to already all that money that has been kind of kept um, and not spent, and you add to this, and then you reopen the economy, and then what you're going to have is like a massive inflow of spending. And yes, uh, a lot of people worry about the impact it's going to have on inflation. I mean, there's a debate about among economists about whether it is going to be uh, really creating a large amount of inflation or no inflation. That's not exactly my area of expertise, but I understand why a lot of people are concerned because, I mean, this is going to be a lot of catching up on spending um, and basically uh, just a lot of pent-up demand. But of course, conversely, we still have 10 million Americans out of work and so many industries hurt particularly hard. Just go down the list. Hospitality, tourism, restaurants, office leasing. So what about those people who need the assistance? Some of that aid is in this package. Well, so the problem is like, actually, how can we help these people the best, right? And so you can argue that just sending them money, sending these corporations money is going to help and sure it's going to help a little bit and maybe kind of help them um, sustain them if they're big enough um, uh, so they can wait until the economy recovers but for a lot of retail owners the the man ship is sell i mean what is it like 80 percent of restaurants that have closed during this pandemic um, won't reopen and now granted there'll be you know, they'll be replaced later by by other restaurants. But I think the first thing we need to do is reopen the economy. And this notion that just we can just make it all right, just by spending a lot of money and sending a lot of money. Again, for small businesses, it is, I mean, not having customers is, is not going to be really made okay by the fact that you're sending money. As you know, the bill is in excess of 600 pages. And between last year, last fall, and this bill, the federal government spending upwards of $6 
trillion dollars in one calendar year as we mark the one-year anniversary of the beginning of the shutdown as a result of COVID-19. When the government spends that kind of money at that pace, what potentially happens? What are your concerns? Well, I, it's worth noting that I had concern about the level of the debt and the direction our debt, of, of our debt. Um, before this, but now, of course, my worries are, um, you know, on steroids. I mean, we went to a level of debt, which was 105% before COVID, which was already a lot to before, even before we take under consideration this $1.9 trillion, which will be, you know, just mostly borrowed, uh, we reached $136 billion. The concern is that these levels unlike previous emergencies, uh, are not going to go down dramatically because a lot of the programs that have been passed uh, under the cover of the COVID bill actually will be extended long after the pandemic is over. And then you have to put under, you have to take under consideration, as I said, the previous trajectory of the debt, which is also alarming. So I can tell you what I worry about. And I, I, I worry about uh, future generations. Uh, I mean, there is, uh, we did a study at Mercatus where we did a review of the literature that specifically looks at all the studies, the academic studies that were published since the last recession on this issue of actually the impact of the debt itself on, uh, on the economy. And what these studies overwhelmingly show, uh, I think it was like all of them, for the exception of two, is that actually there is a moment where the debt is so big that actually it's it, in and of itself, it slows down the economy. The other concern I have is like when you have a level of debt that is so high, uh, um, people usually tend to demand, and especially because we have like the deficit is really high, they're like demand for higher taxes. These higher taxes are going to be implemented that actually been, you know, that, that have been, um, that could potentially raise a lot of revenue are taxes like the value-added tax, which are extremely regressive. Um, and so you you have, and of course this this has uh, consequences in themselves. So you take all of these effects, you know, together, and you have, and then of course, by the way, um, large debt mean, I mean, large, large interest payment. Interest payment is going to start crowding out some spending that all Americans want right now after a certain level. And we don't even have to assume that interest rates are going to go up. I mean, it, make, it makes sense. The bigger the debt, even if interest rates stay constant, the more interest payment you have to pay. And so, I mean, I just, I just really, I mean, I worry because future generations are going to be faced with lower growth, you know, higher taxes, many of them that are going to be more regressive in nature. Uh, we're going to have, we're going to have more interest payments, so basically less space in the budget for things that actually people need. And it doesn't look at like a great, you know, outcome. I understand that a lot of people are saying it's very fashionable right now to say that that doesn't matter, but I just don't think it's, it's, it's true.
Let me remind our listeners, we are talking to Veronique de Rougy, in addition to her work, which is available at Mercatus.org. She is a syndicated columnist. And you mentioned a couple of things that have been really part of our history in American politics. I want to go back to 1964. Ronald Reagan, in a speech endorsing Republican presidential candidate Barry Goldwater, spoke about the issues you just mentioned. No nation in history has ever survived a tax burden that reached a third of its national income. Today, 37 cents out of every dollar earned in this country is the tax collector's share. And yet our government continues to spend $17 million a day more than the government takes in. We haven't balanced our budget 28 out of the last 34 years. We've raised our debt limit three times in the last 12 months. And now our national debt is one and a half times bigger than all the combined debts of all the nations of the world. That from 1964, Ronald Reagan, nearly 60 years later, where are we today? So right now, as we stand before the federal government even goes and borrow all the money it needs for that $1.9 trillion bill uh, that was passed, uh, we are roughly $28 trillion. Uh, That's just 136% of GDP after, at the end of Second World War, I think if I remember correctly, we were at 115% of GDP. That was at the end of the Second World War. This is basically the highest level of government debt as a share of GDP. What's interesting is like um, conservatives and free market um, advocates have been warning for a long time about the impact of the, on the debt. And it is, it is true that it actually kind of like has, has led a lot of people to say, well, see, it never happened. I mean, you guys are always talking about how, you know, like screaming wolf, but it never happens. But the thing is, like, actually, I think this is complacent thinking because the fact that it is true, it hasn't happened in the last 14, 20, 60 years. But it doesn't mean it will actually never happen. That's the thing about debt crisis is that they don't happen uh, for a long time. They take a very, very long time to develop, but when they are upon us, they go fast. Now, the U.S. could be in a situation where we never see a Greece-like scenario because we have a very, we have a very dominant position in the world, but it doesn't mean that it is a free lunch at all. As I said, interest payment, interest, I mean, Interest rates are probably going to go up, but even if they weren't going to go up, I mean, who is going to be lending us some money when we have 300% of our GDP as debt or 600% of our GDP is debt, which is where, where at some point we're going to be heading this way if not only do we, do we not control the drivers of our debt in the form of our entitlement spending, but we keep adding and adding and adding, and, and this is a trend, is like you see Every administration basically outdoes the one before in terms of the scale of any spending reform. So who's going to be lending us uh, that money? I mean, at some point, I mean, they have consequences which lead to foreigners or, or, or at least you know, people who lend us money asking for slightly more interest rates. But let's even imagine, again, as I said, that interest rates go, don't go up and we don't face a Greek-like uh, crisis. I mean, massive amount of interest payment we're going to be paying on all of that debt. And, I mean, there's no question that that level of debt is paid by the people who live in this country in the form of lower growth. 
And that is we can't overstate the importance of growth, especially for lower income people. And of course, it goes without saying that those payments will go up as interest rates go up. But let me go back to the issue of... Uh, but they will go up even without an interest rate, even without our interest rate going up. And just, just to, to tell you the scale of our debt problem, Brian Riedel at the Manhattan Institute and others actually have noted that we have already so much unfunded liability on our books that will come due in the next 30 years, that we're going to have to transfer $101 trillion to pay for entitlement. This is money we're going to have to borrow. I don't think there's actually enough taxes, I mean, uh, that is not oppressive or like, I mean, even if you took all the money of, of the rich it would, it, would, it would never be enough. And then you can do it once, but that's it. I mean, it, it's just the, the scale of what is coming down the pipe is gigantic. So even if interest rates don't go up, the debt is going to be so big that it takes a lot of interest to service that debt. But I was going to ask you about Republicans because they have been famous for cutting taxes but spending hasn't come down. So how much I agree. how much blame do they bear in all of this? Well, they I mean they they blame they they bear some blame and you know but but I think where they bear even more blame is that ultimately they pass themselves for the party of small government when in fact when they're in power they spend as much as not more of Democrats. I mean we've seen it under President Trump, right? I mean it's like it's like I mean, first he was very, very committed to not reforming entitlement spendings, which are really the driver of our future debt. Uh, but but we've seen this with with Republicans before. So I mean, I, I think that it's very easy to to blame. I mean, the sure it's totally responsible to cut taxes and not offset the cuts. Have the political courage to offset the cuts. With spending the the, the the tax cut with spending cuts, but the problem is like that no one wants to actually say is that the real problem with Republicans even bigger than this is like they're they're spent like drunken sellers. They're not, and they haven't been responsible and prudent fiscally for a long time. Some context: We talk about the twenty-eight trillion dollar national debt back in the early nineteen nineties. It was. $4 trillion, and running on the national debt, independent candidate Ross Perot, in October of 1992, in a televised commercial address, this is what he told the American people. I think we can come to the conclusion immediately with this quote. History repeats itself. The budget should be balanced. The treasury should be refilled. Public debt should be reduced the arrogance of public officials should be controlled. These are not new words. Cicero said these words over 2,000 years ago, but certainly they apply to our country today. We're $4.1 trillion in debt. That's a staggering burden to pass to our children. It's unconscionable. Just this year, we ran up $341 billion in new debt, as we discussed the other night. That's our legislators and our president trying to buy our vote this year with what used to be our money. We're not that dumb. 
Now, where does the money come from? It comes from all these places, and we get $1.1 trillion coming in the door. The two major sources are individual income tax and Social Security and Medicare. Corporate income tax is the third. The others are fairly small. How much money do we spend? We got a trillion one coming in, but we're spending a trillion five. Most of that goes to Social Security, Medicare, and other entitlements. Next to that is national defense, well over $300 billion. Next to that is interest on the debt. That's unusually low this year because the interest rates are so low, but don't count on that continuing. Every time the interest rates go up 1%, the 70% of the national debt that's five years or less goes up $28 billion. That's the impact. Veronique DeRuji, that was nearly 30 years ago. Ross Perot, as you listen to what he was telling the American people, he obviously did not win the 92 election. But what was he saying then, and how does that apply today? Well, I think he was he was basically um, stating a fact that actually there's no no one is interesting politically to battle in um, for a reduction of the of the of the debt. I mean, there was this moment in 2010, right, where somehow Republicans managed to kind of coalesce their message around the cut spending message. But that was often an exception. When you're a politician, you 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 don't you you get elected a lot of the time by saying when I get elected uh, when I get elected whomever group you guys are who are going to vote for me I am going to shower you with all sorts of benefits all sorts of benefits no one gets elected by saying when I'm elected I'm going to take all these benefits away and you know we'll adjust and and so on. And right now, there is a big, big moment, movement on the part of both the Republicans and the Democrats to be populist. And, and, and they're all saying the same thing. I mean, you, like, it's just quite amazing how much the light between the Republicans and the Democrats is actually, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just really small. And you have Republicans making the case for, for massive, you know, child uh, payments to parents and parents making actually a really a lot of money. And, and that is totally acceptable um, today. And yet in his 1996 State of the Union address, then President Bill Clinton did make headlines with these remarks. We know and we have worked to give the American people a smaller, less bureaucratic government in Washington. And we have to give the American people one that lives within its means. The era of big government is over. That from then-President Bill Clinton, and yet Veronique de Rougy, the government today is now bigger, and many would say more bloated than ever before. Yes, it is. And, and you know, there are no Democrats who, who talk like Bill Clinton used to talk. And, you know, I moved to the U.S. in 2000, well, 1999, and um, so I've been, been, you know, doing this job for, for quite a while. I mean, when I, when I started working on budget issues, the, the, the budget was $1.8 trillion, right? I mean, it's like, it's like $3 trillion more. I mean, it's, it's remarkable that I still have a job considering that my job is to try to actually kind of, you know, instill fiscal prudence on the part of, of uh, legislators. Um, 
but it's like no one on 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 the Democrat side or on the on the Republican side actually make that case for fiscal prudence. It's it's kind of like there's this really kind of really shared like take this bill, the one point nine trillion dollar bill. What is fascinating to me is it actually it seems to be this this suspension of of any critical thinking uh, that uh on, on, on the part of the media, but, but everyone else, too, that actually all the promises that are made uh, about the things that this money is going to accomplish, that these, these promises are actually going to materialize. It's not as if the government doesn't have actually a long, 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 long track record of actually making these promises and not delivering, but it's as if, like, Everyone, like like literally now, everyone has forgotten. So what should those of us in the media be asking? What questions are left unanswered? So I guess I would be, I mean, I, I guess I, I really would be asking. Um, so the, one of the problems, I guess, I mean, and obviously the media is not, is not my area of expertise, but I've noticed that actually a lot of what the media does is actually covering these issues from the political point of view and, and just talking about the politics as opposed to really looking at the policy issue. And, and, and as a result, a lot of, a, a lot of news stories, um, are reported as political piece and report the policy stuff, it sounds at least to me like like basically press release talking points. It's like, you know, like whatever uh, legislator would say, my bill will do that, and the, 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 the media reports that this is actually what it's going to do. I think there should be more skepticism and start to actually really press legislators and advocates more about actually really the evidence for the fact that these bills are going to deliver. And then also go back and look whether these promises that were made were actually fulfilled. And and um, so I, 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 I think, and um, maybe talk more about like, you know, um, economists who are, you know, who are not, you know, political by nature or um, experts who are, or, you know, not political by nature, but I'm the, I'm certainly not gonna. You know, you guys do your job uh, really well at C-SPAN, and you always actually have a lot of variety of views and and long form discussion. So I don't think that applies to you guys particularly. What about the potential of a tax hike to try to at least begin to bring down the nation's growing debt? Is that likely oh, in the foreseeable future? Oh yeah, I mean it's it's pretty clear that. Uh, the appetite for raising taxes to address spending um, is going to be, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's not as if it's not already. I mean, there's a talk about a wealth tax, obviously, to address inequality, but it's also sold as a way to raise a lot of revenue. And that's, for instance, you were asking what the media can do. Actually, there's a reason why most countries in Europe that had a wealth tax have abandoned them with the exception, the exception of a few countries. And, and so when politicians here in the U.S. are telling you all the great things that the wealth tax is going to accomplish, why don't we actually go and look 
at what the Europeans are doing and why actually they've abandoned the wealth tax. And one of the reasons is because it actually really is very hard to administrate and it actually doesn't really raise that much revenue. Um, so we're, we're the likelihood of a, of, a, of a wealth tax being proposed and maybe passed is more likely a value-added tax. Um, you know, is, is going to pass. I mean, we are going to, yeah, we're, it's, it's clear. But I want to, I actually want to, want to, want to make this point very clear. You are not going to make any dent to this debt by only raising taxes on the rich. When you look at the way the Europeans, and I'm not arguing that we should be doing this, but the way they do it is actually a lot of their taxes are extremely regressive. The U.S. has a, has a very, um, as at, so the income tax is very progressive, but even when you look at the overall federal system or even the overall system, it's actually, it's actually somewhat progressive. Um, and, and this is not the case in a lot of European countries where in order to generate a lot of revenue, you cannot just do it by taxing the rich. Um, the other thing that I would say is that there's a huge literature that I have studied, you know, for a long time and I've written a lot about it. It's like, how do uh, countries that have successfully reduced their debt to GDP ratio gone about doing it? And, and the, the literature is, is very, very clear by adopting fiscal adjustment packages that are mostly based on spending cuts. And people are not going to like this. Mostly reform to social program, which is entitlement in the American context. How many countries have successfully reduced their debt? Actually, it's a minority. Uh, the last time I looked is, is when you look at, at all the countries that have implemented fiscal adjustment packages, 80% have actually gone like a mix of spending and a lot of tax increase. And as such, they have failed to reduce their debt to GDP ratio. So only 20% of the, of the, of the countries who've done have actually gone and done it successfully. In our final minute, a personal question for you. Why is this your passion? And briefly, what is your background? So I, I'm doing it because uh, a long time ago, I realized that there was something that was very problematic about the free market talking points that uh, we should cut, cut, spend, cut taxes, cut taxes, cut taxes, cut taxes. And I realized that free market advocates, a lot of them had abdicated and actually really um, you know, talking about spending. I mean, uh, Jack Kemp, you know, during the Reagan years, called it talking about spending cuts like the root canal of policy. Yeah, it's not it's not super pleasant. No one wants to hear it. And so I also, you know, I also uh, think Milton Freeman is right when he says that actually the true size of government is measured by how much the government spends. In addition, I have looked at so many government programs that actually promises to do wonderful things and actually rarely deliver. And in a sense, basically the shower benefits on, uh, to, to special interest. And, and so all of these reasons mean is, are the, is, this is why I'm actually so interested in this and this issue. And my, my background is like I moved here. Um, I moved here over 20 years ago from France. And um, I just love this country and I have children and I, um, you know, I, I hope that they're going to get the benefit that I got um, from this just remarkable nation. Of course, there are a lot, there are problems. They're everywhere. There are problems. And, and, but, but overall, I mean, I'm incredibly grateful uh, for this country. And so I'll fight for it.
And we are grateful for your time and insights. Veronique DeRuji, her work available at Mercatus.org. Thank you for joining us on C-SPAN's The Weekly. Thank you for having me. And a reminder, be sure to subscribe to this and all of C-SPAN's podcasts so you never miss an episode. And follow us on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening. <laughs>